This is the Lost Start of Communication, hosted by Molly and Trisha. Welcome back to the Lost Start of Communication podcast. As you've probably noticed, we've been on a bit of a hiatus and haven't released an episode for quite a while. For today, Molly actually won't be able to join us. To update you, she got a new job, her schedule is a little bit different, and it's been tricky for us to coordinate the East Coast, West Coast time difference. So it's just me on today's episode. I'm very excited for you to hear this episode because it's on a topic that is very near and dear to my own heart because we're talking about highly sensitive people. No, that doesn't just mean someone who cries all the time, although that can happen, but highly sensitive person goes beyond that. Today's episode with an expert on the topic will help you understand more deeply what it means to be a highly sensitive person, and we'll talk about some strategies and tips for mental health and communication regardless of your sensitivity level. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law Start of Communication podcast. Today's very special guest is Sarah Kessner. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Trisha. It's so great to be here with you. I'm so excited to have Sarah on today because she is going to talk to us about highly sensitive people. And we'll get into some communication strategies, perhaps, that we can use with highly sensitive people But first, let's define that term. A lot of times people hear highly sensitive person must just be someone that cries a lot or gets very emotional, but there's a whole other world to it. This is an actual thing. So Sarah, would you mind giving us an overview of what highly sensitive person, what that really means? Sure. So uh, the term highly sensitive person was coined by a woman named Dr. Elaine Aaron, and she wrote a book on it subsequently called The Highly Sensitive Person. And there's another book called The Highly Sensitive Person in Love, and I think The Highly Sensitive Child. So she's really done a lot of research and writing on the subject. Um, And what a highly sensitive person is is essentially a person who feels things more deeply than your average person. And I think this particular metaphor is really useful. Um, it's not mine, but uh, I think it's, uh, it's an incredibly useful metaphor. And that is that like 30% of the world are dandelions, right? And they can essentially grow anywhere right? They're fine growing up in a crack in the sidewalk and they'll thrive and they'll be just a-okay. And then another 30 to 40% of the population are tulips. And tulips, you know, they're not as um, hardy as dandelions, uh, but, you know, they do okay uh, in some dirt, some soil, some sunlight, some water, and uh, they grow just fine. And then there's another around 30% of the population that are orchids, right? And those are our highly sensitive folks. Um, And orchids need just the right amount of sunlight, just the right amount of water, just the right amount of humidity, essentially just the right 
conditions in order to grow and thrive. But when they do grow and thrive, they're just as beautiful as the tulip and the dandelion. Great. I love that analogy. It's like finding the Goldilocks of this is too hot. Yeah. (laughs) So how did you start working with highly sensitive people? What could you just tell us a little bit about your background and your story and how you really discovered that this was a thing and came across? Yeah, sure. Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, I grew up, um, always feeling quite shy and like I didn't quite fit in. And I was often told, oh, you're too sensitive. Stop crying. You cry too much, right? Stop being so sensitive. You need to toughen up, et cetera, right? And um, so I grew up essentially thinking that there was something wrong with me. Um, and alongside of this, as I was growing up, I, um, I found the theater and the theater was a place where I felt like I belonged and I felt like my sensitivity was welcomed and even an asset. And so I started to create a home for myself in the theater and I ended up, um, pursuing an undergraduate degree and a graduate degree in acting and pursued a career as a professional actor for a period of time after graduating from graduate school. And what I found is that the community and the sense of fulfillment that I got um, pursuing uh, acting when I was in school was very different than the sense of fulfillment and uh, the sense of community that I had when I was uh, pursuing an acting career in New York City. And ultimately um, I decided when I was around 30 years old that, you know, and I had gotten to a place where I was working fairly often, but it just wasn't, it just, it wasn't the fantasy. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And I, I re- did a lot of reflecting and realized that I needed to do something that was more supportive of my mental health and more fulfilling. And so I decided to, um, I decided to pursue a teaching career and I studied um, to be a voice and acting teacher. I mentored with uh, a voice professor at NYU by the name of Scott Miller. And I worked alongside of him for a couple of years and then began to teach uh, acting and voice. And that was uh, also, that was very fulfilling. Um, But I got to a place a few years after that where I just was wanting more. And I just felt like um, there was something missing for me. And through the guidance of another mentor, I was, encur- I was encouraged to pursue a career as a coach. And I went through a coaching training program and began coaching. And this was about going on five years ago now. And since then I've devoted um, my time, my professional time to coaching highly sensitive people as they navigate 
transitions. Amazing. But how did you discover or realize that you are a highly sensitive Ooh. person? Was that from the acting or did that come later? Because I feel like just so the audience knows, I also am a highly sensitive person. And I just discovered that within the last two years, and it was a total light bulb moment for me. And so just for anyone listening, that is one of the 30% of the population that falls into this category. It can be very illuminating. And for those of you that are not, it's really helpful navigating relationships when you understand that these type of people exist. So Sarah, when did you figure that out? Yeah. So thanks for asking that question. Um, so I believe that I figured it out. Um, let me stop and go back. Okay. So I figured that out when I was in New York city, pursuing a career as an actor and was, um, going through a lot of rejection. Even if you're working a lot as an actor, there's still just tons of rejection. And it was very much like an up and down kind of roller coaster ride. I can't um, imagine a more stressful <laughs> job for a, a sensitive person than yeah. acting in New York City. So good on you. Yeah. It's seriously like your um <laughs> like your job interviewing for your career. Um and um during that time, I was going through a period of a lot of anxiety. Um, and it set me on this path of inner work. Um, and through um, exploring um, and reading, you know, many different work books, I don't remember at this point how I got um, uh, how I found Elaine Aaron's work, but I do remember that when I did find it, it was like, oh my God, uh, this is who I am. There's, there's someone out there who not only gets me and understands me, but has coined a term for who I am. And, and then learning that, wow, there's like 30% of the population that is this way, just things started to make sense for me. Um, and even just having that awareness, it was like a weight was lifted off of my shoulders. And um, this, this possibility for a lot more self-compassion came into my life because I, um, I stopped believing that there was something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's incredibly empowering. Yeah, I think that's huge. And I love that you said all of that because that is such a fundamental piece of it. If you're a highly sensitive person, which I also think it's important that we don't give in too much to the labels and put ourselves in a box and say, well, I can't do things because I'm sensitive, but we can perhaps go deeper with that. But if you are, if you do fall into this category for everyone listening, if you haven't heard this term before, it really refers to a neurological condition. And so it's not just being emotionally sensitive, but it's sensitivity to light, to sounds, to smells, to all sorts of sensory input, 
and emotional input. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the time, sensitive people feel like you said, that there's something inherently wrong with me because 70% of the people around me don't get this. And the other 30% that do, it may not be talking about it. And so having that label is very helpful. Yes. And, um, I, I think that's really important, right? It's not just that we are emotionally processing things um, more deeply and more strongly, but we're, we're processing stimulus in general more deeply and more strongly, right? So oftentimes that shows up is in the form of emotional stimulus, but it can show up like if you are in a crowd, right? Or if uh, you're in a supermarket and the lighting is really bright or the fluorescents are flickering on and off. Um, that kind of sense of sensory overload or sensory overwhelm can be uh, a good marker of high sensitivity. And I really agree with you about what you said about not letting the label box you in, but um, using it as uh a tool to uh, understand yourself more deeply, right? Um, which can then help you to honor your rhythm so that you can operate in the world um, from a place where you are taking care of yourself, um, not in the sense of limiting yourself, but in the sense of honoring yourself and who you are. Yeah. I love the way you worded that because it's just recognizing that you may need more self-care than you thought and not feeling guilty about it and not feeling like there's something wrong with you for needing that. One of the sensory inputs for me, that's always been a thing is if the music is really loud in a restaurant, I just cannot focus on what the other person is saying, or if it's really, really cold, I just can't focus. And so doing whatever you can to adjust, maybe make sure to bring an extra jacket or something or sit where you're not by the speakers. It can be really helpful once you realize that's a thing. And it's not just you being high maintenance, it's <laughs> worth figuring out. Yeah. And I think that that's really important because um, I think all people in our culture, regardless um, of whether or not they consider themselves themselves sensitive are conditioned from an early age to basically ignore their own rhythm, mm -hmm. their own body cues, right. Um, to essentially toughen up to not make waves. Right. So I think that everyone regardless of where they are on the sensitivity spectrum can benefit from tuning in to yourself, honoring your rhythm and speaking up for what your needs are. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned you worked, we work with people navigating transitions. What is it about transitions that are particularly stressful for sensitive people or even non-sensitive mm -hmm. people? But can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, sure. So transitions are generally difficult for everyone. Um, you know, transitions such as we all know the classics of moving, divorce, death, 
right, as being classic transitions that people really struggle with. But what isn't often talked about is that there are also positive transitions that people also struggle with, such as a new job, right? That, can, that could be a positive or a negative. Moving could be a positive or a negative. Engagement could be a positive or a negative, not necessarily a negative, but it can bring up uncomfortable emotions. Um, you know, uh, breaking up with a partner, that could be a good thing, right? But it can also bring up uncomfortable emotions. And these are all examples of transitions, right? And transitions are periods of change. So there are periods where we feel that the ground isn't as firm underneath our feet. And it can bring up a lot of feelings of uncertainty, feelings of fear around loss. And, um, you know, that can be challenging for anyone, but especially when you're highly sensitive, um, you'll, you want to have some tools and some support to navigate your way through that transition um, with more, more ease um, and more of a sense of um, connection to self that no matter what is going on externally, inside, I'm rooted to something that knows that it's all going to be okay. Yeah, that's hugely important. I just have so many questions. Where do you even begin with that? Finding that place of rootedness with mm-hmm. a client. So one of the modalities that I find most helpful to use is um, called internal family systems or IFS. Um, and it's a method of working with different parts of the self. Um, different parts of the self might include the inner critic, the perfectionist, the scared part, the ego, uh, the taskmaster, the manager, right? We could go on and on and on listing kind of different aspects that everyone has inside of them. Um, And these parts of ourselves are protectors. And oftentimes we think that these parts are the enemy, but they're really working really hard to protect us from uncomfortable feelings like grief, pain, uncertainty, fear, et cetera, right? So part of the work is getting into conversation with these different parts um, and forging a relationship with these parts where you're not seeing them as the enemy, but that you're seeing them as actually protectors who have been working really hard for you for a long time. And part of what that does is there starts to become some separation between you and for instance, your perfectionist, Mm. right? So that you realize that you are not the perfectionist right? And that is simply an aspect of you. 
And another part of internal family systems, which I think is incredibly important, is um, the idea of the self with a capital S. And the self is essentially the highest, most loving part of yourself. And part of the work is getting in touch with this part of yourself. It's the part of you that lives underneath the anxiety, underneath the fear, underneath the storyline of whatever is going on. It is that rooted part of you that is at your core knows that regardless of what else is going on in your life, that you are ultimately safe and you are ultimately okay. And in the beginning, that voice might be really, really, really quiet, mm-hmm. right? But everyone has this part of themselves. Everyone has access to this self energy. And through the work of um, internal family systems and through also the journaling work that I do, we strengthen your connection to self so that you become more rooted in this energy, right? So it becomes much more of a place where if you think of, um, you could think of all the parts of you as being at a table, right? Mm -hmm. So they're all at a table. And a lot of people have like their people pleaser at the head of the table or their inner critic, right? And it's not that your people pleaser, your inner critic doesn't get to have a seat at the table anymore. It's just that self is at the head of the table. Mm -hmm. I love that. It's, and people always talk about finding your authentic self and expressing your authentic self. And I really like the way that you described that. And it's so easy to be hard on ourselves and say, oh, just stop with the perfectionism or stop with the inner critic. And so I like the feeling of welcoming them to the table and say, hey, you're here. I acknowledge you. But the ability to kind of distance yourself from that and speak from the place of truth and inner peace and wisdom it sounds incredibly powerful. The problem with um, kind of shutting down the inner critic or the shame voice or whatever, or pushing it away is that it has a boomerang effect, right? And those voices just get louder the more that we try to shut them out. I, I like to think of of fear, the inner critic, right? These more challenging parts of ourselves as, um, have you seen the movie, The Wizard of Oz? Yes. Right. So, you know, in the movie, The Wizard of Oz, Oz appears as like this big green, scary head, right? And he's got like flames and fire, like shooting out the side of his throne. Right. And he's putting on this big show of being this really big, scary guy that you don't want to mess with. And then Toto, which I love that. I don't think it's an accident that it's a dog because I think of dogs as being 
um, or all animals really as being just examples of uh, beings who live entirely in the present moment. Mm. Pulls back the curtain on Oz and what you see there is just a sweet, confused, scared old man. Mm -hmm. And I, I like that metaphor, that visual metaphor a lot as a metaphor for our fears because they tend to manifest as being really scary and loud. And yet when we have the courage to enter into the present moment and pull back the curtain, what we find is just a kind of scared, maybe a little sad, confused, smaller self. Mm -hmm. And it's so much easier to extend compassion to that sort of figure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that analogy. I hadn't heard that before, but it does make a lot of sense. So I'm curious because you had mentioned to me before you do a lot of work around values. And this mm -hmm. is something I've personally been thinking about with my coaching clients I've been talking about. So what role does defining one's values play in everything you just mentioned? Or, you know, how does that help people navigate transitions? Well, I think that um, in our culture, we're really taught to, um, to make choices according to what we might call, uh, like in kind of Insta Instagram world, like your gut feelings, follow your gut, follow your intuition, et cetera. And the problem with that for highly sensitive people, especially, is that um, they can have a really hard time with delineating between what is my intuition and what is my fear. Mm. Um, and uh, I have I have ideas and, and tools about how to delineate bet between those those two things, which are very different. But one of the things that I think is helpful to work with first is saying, okay, let's, let's put aside how you're feeling in the moment. And instead, let's get clear on what you value. Um, because when you're clear on what you value, then you can look at a choice that you're about to make. And you can then decide, okay, is this choice in alignment with my values? With what, the, what is the life that I'm wanting to create? Is it taking me closer to that or is it taking me further away from that? Mm. So what would be an example of a value? Because I feel like often we say that and it's, well, okay, I value my family. I value health. Mm -hmm. And these are such broad things. How do you help people narrow down and really laser in on what is a value to them? And then what if a choice has two conflicting values? How do you help people navigate, which is the priority? 
Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, what I think, so how I have them work with values is we'll talk about generally three or four peak experiences that they've had. And from those peak experiences, we'll brainstorm what are the values that are showing up in those. And oftentimes it'll be like between, you know, 10 and 20 values that you hear um, with those peak experiences. And examples of values are, you know, family, work-life balance, creativity, um, relationships, travel. Um, trying to think of some other ones off the top of my head. Uh, self-care, mm. right? These are all examples of things that people might value. And from that big list that they create, I'll have them narrow it down into about seven. Mm. And then we'll go through and we'll be like, okay, with this value, like family, for example, how much are you honoring this value right now right? on a scale of one to 10, right? So we'll go through that and then we'll talk about well, when was a time that you were honoring this value, okay? And then we'll talk about what's getting in the way of you honoring this value now. And then, right, when we've gotten really, really clear, we'll talk about, okay, so this is, these are the values. This is what I'm saying that um, I want my life to be about. This is how much I'm honoring them now. This is what's getting in the way of me honoring this value. And then we'll begin to talk about what are tangible steps that we can take to begin to honor those values that are, you know, at a three or a four or two or a three or even a five or a six. Like, okay, what are some ways that we can begin to bump those up? Um, and then your question about what if I'm going to make, I have a choice to make and there's some values that are in conflict. Mm -hmm. Could you give me an example? Maybe. Yeah, so uh, for example, if here, okay, so if I have a value of relationships, but I also have a value of health and my friends are going to eat pizza and I've decided I didn't want to eat gluten and dairy because my doctor said I should avoid it for a while. And so then I have a choice to make of, do I honor this value or maybe drinking, you know, sometimes people give mm -hmm. up drinking and they think, okay, I can't go to the mm -hmm. bar and it's too hard for me to go to the bar without just having water. So how do we choose in that moment, which is the, the priority? Yeah. Um, that's a great question. So I think that one thing that can be helpful is to, um, we often can get caught up in black and white thinking, mm -hmm. right? I either meet up with my friends or I honor my value to um, stay healthy, right? Uh, and when we have a stronger relationship to self, 
we can go into a situation like that more rooted Mm -hmm. in what our values are and in what's important. And that also comes with being clear on what your values are, right? If you're really valuing health and you're like, oh, and I really want to bump up how much I'm honoring that value. If you're playing with that in a conscious way, it's easier to honor it when you're frankly, just clear on what it is. So then you might go, choose to go and spend time with your friends and eat a salad, mm-hmm. right? Um, or, you know, ha- eat beforehand and then just choose to hang out. Or, um, you know, drinking is one that comes up a lot. Um, you know, oftentimes people struggle with, well, I want to see my friends, but I don't want to drink. And um, what can be helpful is suggesting an alternate place to hang out or an alternate time. Or if you're feeling strong enough in yourself, um, you can say, you know what? I can go to the bar tonight and I'm just going to have a club soda with lime and no one is gonna be the wiser, Mm -hmm. right? Everyone's going to think I'm drinking G and T's. Yeah. I think what's important to remember too, is this can happen in different periods. So thinking about myself and my own health journey, and there was a period of time where I had to give up certain foods and it was really hard at first because of that black and white thinking, but it also, I feel like with a lot of our values, there are cycles where, okay, for these few months, I'm going to be really dedicated to my health. And that's going to be the priority. Or for this period of time, I'm really going to prioritize my job because there's this project and it kind of has the potential for a really high revenue or, you know, this period of time going to prioritize different things without, of course, completely sacrificing all of your relationships and your health and other factors, but recognizing that sometimes we have to make a choice. And as long as you're clear, I like, I love that you specified that because so often, I don't think we take the time to define our values. And then we wake up one day and say, what is my life? Why, how did I get exactly right? So many people are just accepting the values that their family has given to them or the culture has given to, to them. And then are, they're like, what am I doing? Mm -hmm. I'm climbing this ladder and I don't even want to be on this ladder. Um, and, and with values, what I have found in my life is that um, when I am clear on what my values are, I feel so much better in myself mm-hmm. and in my body. And that feeling is a really good feeling. And I want more of that. So then the stronger I get in that, the less tempting it is for me to do things that are out of alignment with what my values are. Mm. Because I just don't feel good inside when I cross that boundary within myself. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's a great point. And sometimes it takes the short-term discomfort of saying, I know this is a hard choice to go to the gym right now, but I know I'm going to feel better after the fact. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Right. And that's part, um, how I see that is part of self energy. It's part of accessing that place inside of you 
that at your core knows, yeah, it's hard to go to the gym, but you know, you're going to feel so much better when you do. Mm -hmm. I'm so interested in what you said before about the difference, the distinction between intuition and fear and how that shows up with this, because you're, I feel like in that situation, for example, you may be conflicted between, do I need to go to the gym or do I need to just rest right now? And I find Mm -hmm. myself often saying, well, I definitely need to rest because I'm just such a sensitive person. And it's like, no, I think sometimes I could probably go to the gym. I think it's okay. Yeah. Um, that that's great. That's great. I like to think of, um, ourselves as having both what you might call an inner mother and an inner father, right? And these are sort of, you could think of as two different aspects of self, right? And by inner mother and inner father, I'm talking about sort of the inner feminine and the inner masculine. And the inner feminine is very much about being. Mm -hmm. The inner feminine is, yes, Trisha, go lie down, have a nap, Yes, that's what you need. So good at that. (laughs) Right? And that's wonderful. And, you know, especially during these past couple years with the pandemic and everything else going on in the world. Yeah, we need to be taking more naps. I'm in wholehearted support of that. And then there's also this aspect that I think is really useful to develop of the inner father or the inner masculine. You could use whatever term you find useful. And that's the part that says, yeah, I know you don't want to go to the gym, Trisha, but you're going to feel so much better when you do. You're going to feel so much better if you do. Why don't we just put on our gym clothes, go to the gym for five minutes. Mm -hmm. Right. And you know, once you get to the gym, it's like no one ever gets to the gym and just is like, yeah, I'm not going to work out. Right. It's really, it's, I don't know, there's this saying that the hardest or the, the heaviest weight at the gym is, is the front door. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. Um, but to also just touch on intuition versus fear, what I think is helpful to reflect on is does this voice feel loving? Mm. Right. That's a good prompt to ask yourself when you're trying to make a choice and you're not sure if it's your fear or your intuition yeah I like that that's great yeah thanks for yeah and to remember also that intuition um is more comfortable with the gray fear is extremely black and white Mm. Mm mm-hmm so probably the obsessive, I have to do this is, is coming from fear compared yeah. to the, you know, it's, it's okay. Yeah. Go with your gut. That's more. Yeah. Intuition tends to be like a more gentle kind of whisper in the ear that feels loving to you. Mm-hmm. So to switch gears a little bit, and I know we're running out of time, but since this is a communication show, I would love to just talk quickly about some strategies you would recommend either for highly sensitive people, how to communicate with others about their sensitivity or in general, Mm -hmm. but also for people who don't identify as being a highly sensitive person, anything they might be able to do to communicate with the people in their lives that are a little more sensitive. 
Yeah, well, I think regardless of where you are in the sensitive spectrum, you know, we all have times when we have to have conversations that are challenging, mm-hmm. right? Um, and those of us who are more sensitive might find more of those conversations perhaps more challenging, but we all have uh, to have hard conversations sometimes. And a tool that I always recommend to my clients is to write a letter that you're not going to send to the person that you have to have this difficult conversation with. Get out um, your shitty first draft first, right? Get it out on paper, completely unedited, right? And then you might go back and do a second or even a third draft. But getting it all out can help you get really clear on what you want to say and also what maybe you don't want to say. Yeah. I'm just going to jump in because I think that's so huge. One big giveaway for me that made me realize I was a highly sensitive person is the tendency to fantasize and really create bigger problems out of something because most sensitive people are really highly creative and end up pouring that creativity into worrying and inventing conversations with people, inventing problems. And so I think the letter writing idea is so genius because when you write something out and then you read it later, you realize like, and I'm saying this from personal experience, I've looked at my journal and thought, why was I so dramatic? Like that (laughs) not, that was not necessary. And now I can be a little more patient with myself and recognize, okay, this is what I was going through. But the times when I was dramatic in the conversation and went to that extreme and it, it didn't go well. And so writing it out and really seeing from a more objective lens how things may have gotten carried away, I think is incredibly powerful. Yeah. It can really help get you grounded, get you clear. Also, you know, because oftentimes as highly sensitive people, I think we have a a fear that we're going to get overly emotional when we have to have this conversation and that our emotions are going to take over. Right. Mm -hmm. So letting that steam valve open up, by writing it down ahead of time and getting those emotions out in the form of you know, a first draft can be really helpful so that we've processed and released some of what needs releasing so that we don't feel like we're just completely overcome by um, our emotions when we get in the room and have to have the difficult conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Great. So as we wrap up, if there was one tangible takeaway you could offer our listeners in terms of either communication or something just that you would recommend to make our lives better, what would that be? So something that, um, a way that I like to frame a a conversation, if it's uh, something that I need to bring up uh, with someone who I'm in relationship with. Um, let me start again. So something that I find really helpful when I have to have a difficult conversation with them is to frame it as when you do or say X, 
the story I tell myself is why. And this is taken from the Gottmans, but I find it really, really useful. Um, and what I love about it is it helps the other person stay out of a defensive place because you're taking responsibility for your feelings. You're not making your feelings the responsibility of someone else in this mm -hmm. situation, right? And so it's taken from the Gottmans who are marriage counselors, right? But you can apply this text to, to a conversation that you have to have with a parent, with a sibling, with a close friend, with a boss or a colleague, right? Or an intimate relationship. You can apply it anywhere. It's a really useful phrase that you can use to frame um, a, a difficult conversation. When you do or say X, the story I tell myself is Y. I love that. That's gold. Great. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Where can our listeners find you and learn more about what you do? Yeah, you can find me at www.sarahkessner.com. And that's spelled S-A-R-A-H-K-O-E-S-T-N-E-R.com or on Instagram at Sarah Kessner Coach. Yes. And we will link your website and your bio, all of that in our show notes. So thank you so much for being here. And thank you all for listening. Thank you for having me, Tricia.